Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We're finishing up our series called Where Does Your Loyalty Lead? And this series has been taking us through the book of Ruth. And we're going to be talking today about Ruth chapter 4, just kind of wrapping up the series. And one of the things as I was digging in and prepping for this week and rereading and rethinking about this passage, one of the things that stuck out to me is how two different people can approach a same, the same type of situation and have such different perspectives on it and have such different outcomes. And then it just got me just kind of going down a rabbit trail, realizing like, man, how true is that all the way across the board in life? That, that you can have the exact same set of circumstances. One person can approach that set of circumstances and see all of the potential pitfalls and what could go wrong and what might go wrong or what for sure will go wrong or why it doesn't work or it's going to be too expensive or like whatever the stuff. And another person can look at the exact same set of circumstances and be like, wow, what a cool opportunity. Right? And we just have this very different perspective. And then, and then just how different people approach life in general differently. Some people can land more on the the dreamer side, where they're a big dreamer and they're uh, risk takers by nature. They're more of the like, I have a gut intuition and so I my, my I trust my gut kind of person. Another person is more of the like, no, I'm more cautious. I need all the information. I need the facts. I need to assess whether or not this is wise or makes sense. And As I was thinking those things through, what I'm reminded of over and over is that it's not about like one way is right or one way is wrong in every situation. It's just that it's that the the idea is that we need to recognize that different people come at things differently. And so we're going to do something a little bit fun, right? And those of you that are at home watching online or wherever you're watching from, maybe you're awesome and you're watching from a boat fishing, like bonus points. If I mean, if you're going to do church online, at least do it well. Uh, and so uh, if, whether you're watching at home or in the room, uh, we're going to do this little activity here where you're going to get up and you're going to get to move around here for a minute. And I know Daggy uh, with the seating, it's not the most ideal, but you guys are really smart and I know you will figure this out. So what we're going to do is I want you to get up and you're going to meet some people. And what you're going to talk about is, are you more of a risk taker, trust your gut person? Are you more cautious in life? Do you need all the informations? Are you a big dreamer? Are you a little bit more of the pessimist, realist? Like kind of share a little bit about where you land, which camp you land in. Try and find two different people and learn about each other. So on your marks, get set, go. All right, everybody, let's work our way back to your spots. Good job communicating and being friendly and stuff. So I do that for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, I think it's really healthy for us to interact with people and just get reminded of stuff that we all know, but man, we live in a world where it's really easy to forget it right now because it feels like everybody has to think the same as you or they're like some kind of an enemy or something. It's like all we see are these polarized views of how different is bad is what it looks like all the time lately. And I think it's really healthy for us to be reminded that difference just different. 
and people just have different perspectives and come at things for different reasons. And it's not good or bad. It's not about your value. It's not about your worth as a person. It's just that you're different and different's okay, right? And it, it happens for all sorts of reasons. It could be because of your personality. Like certain people, they're just naturally bend towards, uh, you know, really cautious in evaluating the details and other people just naturally bend towards the go for it, I'll think about the consequences later, right? Like we sort of just have this natural tendency and other times it's because of how our parents raised us and what our parents were like. And if you had really cautious parents that taught you to really fact find and evaluate your options and think things through, you probably picked up a lot of those things. I don't know if you in the room are parents uh, or at home, if you're parents, you probably have sort of figured this thing out. It's an awesome and terrible thing as a parent that your kids turn out a lot like you. Um, and they pick up a lot of your habits, good and bad. I'm navigating some of that fun stuff with my youngest son in particular right now, where I know it may shock some of you, but I'm a bit of a dreamer and a bit of a risk taker. Um, and I am sort of a trust my gut intuition on a lot of things as far as just kind of like if something feels like it's a dream worth chasing, that's sort of sometimes where it starts. And so my son, my youngest son has picked up a lot of those things and it's interesting because right now he is spontaneously thinking about like, uh, just jumping on a plane to Africa because it sounds fun. And it's, he's not, it's not just an idea, like he, I mean, he's going there. And so I'm over here, I find myself all of a sudden in this other set of shoes that are not common shoes for me to wear, that are the, how are you going to live there? What are you going to eat? What are you going to think about? Where are you going to be? And all that, and having all that kind of fun conversation. And he's over here like, I'm just up for an adventure. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like looking in the mirror. And I have, and I have to give my younger self advice that my younger self wouldn't want. And I'm like, ah, God has such a sense of humor, right? And so I think it's just really healthy for us to remember that different people approach things for different reasons and different's okay. Uh, and we're going to get a chance to kind of put this into practice a little bit in the passage today in Ruth chapter 4, because we're going to meet two different guys. We've already met Boaz, of course, in the story, but we're going to see these two family redeemers. They're relatives of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. They're both family relatives of his. They both have a right to redeem her land and buy it back into her family, but they both come at the same exact situation differently. And the reaction and results are different. So we're going to look at that a little bit as we go along, among some other cool stuff. So let's look at Ruth chapter 4 and start in the beginning. Verse 1. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Whoops, I'm ahead of myself. Um, He didn't go to the town gate yet. Rewind. Uh, He went... Oh... You know, after you say something three times in a row, I'm like, did I say that already? No, I did not. All right, let's pause. Here's where we were last week. Boaz and Ruth were at the threshing floor. Remember PG-13 last week? Do you guys remember that? Okay, it helps if I remember it, so then we remember where we are. Um, So they were at the threshing floor, and she's declaring her intentions to him, and she is trying to make sure he knows she wants to come under his protection and his care. She wants to be his wife, and she's making it obvious, and he uh, responds well 
to her intentions and says, yeah, I'm interested, except there's somebody else that's closer uh, as a relative than me. And so they've got to get the, you know, we've got to talk to them first and settle it. And so he's like, don't go far. I'll take care of this quick, which leads to the next day where he does go to the town gate. So it goes like this. Boaz went to the town gate, took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. And then Boaz called the 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. Now, I want to just do a little rabbit trail on the city gate here, just because it's kind of a cool thing. Um, The city gates throughout uh, the ancient world would tell you a lot about the type of city that was there. And so the smaller the gate and the less fortified it was, the smaller the village or the less resources they would have, or maybe there was just nothing really important or no one really important there. The larger the gate and the more fortified the gate would be, it would tell you later as an archaeologist that like, hey, there was something important here which leads you to want to dig and study that area even more. And so what's cool is you go throughout uh, ancient Israel and Turkey and and, today, and you get to see ruins from the ancient times of all these cool archaeological digs. So here's one. I want to show you what some city gates look like. This is in Israel near the Valley of Elah. And so down the center, uh, out the very edge of the wall there, you see the little opening. That's a threshold where a gate would have been open and closed. And then these little, uh, looks like uh, rooms to the left and the right of the pathway there are called chambers. And so a gate would be like a, a single gate or a one-chamber gate or a two-chamber, three-chamber, four-chamber, and so forth. And the more chambers it had, the, they were designed to be able to be filled in with stone and rubble and debris so that you could really, um, you could fortify the weakest point in a city's defenses was a gate. And so the more chambers there were, the heavier you could fortify that weak spot in the gate. And so the more chambers there were, the more it would tell you about like how intent they were on making sure no, but no enemies would come in here. And so this is a, uh, this is a three chamber gate. And so this was a bigger city with a lot to protect. And then if you look at the next slide here, we see some Flintstone furniture. And so the person's foot is on what it looks like a stone bench. And you see one down the middle there too. And this would have been exactly like where Boaz would have gathered with the city elders and they would have sat on these stone benches inside these chambers. And that's where the uh, elders and leaders of the city would do business. This is where they would work and communicate and, and orchestrate deals and settle legal matters and settle disputes. And so Boaz was here at a place like this. Now, slightly unrelated, but too cool not to talk about. Right around the corner from that one is this little gate. Now, for us sitting here in Pullman, Washington, looking at that picture right there, it's like, wow, those are rocks. We have those. Um, they have more in Israel. Uh, but what you're looking at right here is really cool. Uh, that threshold there that's remaining along with these two deals, uh, Noah's right there in the yellow, bright yellow shirt, and that's, I think, Aaron right in the middle, um, is that particular gate there is at this city that overlooks the Valley of Elah, which was where the battle of uh, David and Goliath took place. I, a battle might be an overstatement. It's where David whooped Goliath. And so scholars and archaeologists 
will uh, speculate with good reason and, and a, a lot of support to say that that would have been where David as a young shepherd came strolling up to check on his brothers and had a conversation with King Saul and then eventually went out and potentially, obviously it's a little bit of speculation, but it's supported by a lot of good archaeological evidence, potentially that particular gate right there. Like he could have walked through that gate, to stand on a piece of rock that David stood on and walked through 3,000 years ago is pretty amazing stuff. It's so cool to get to go there and see God's word like come to life in 3D, like walking through the stories of the Bible. We went down from there and went down to the valley, and at the bottom of the valley, there's this ancient creek bed that's been there forever, and uh, it's between where the Israelites were encamped there and where the Philistines were encamped. And it's this stream bed that probably would have been the kind of place that David would have stopped and picked up stones on his way to go toe-to-toe with Goliath. And so I got this one for me uh, as a reminder. And so this has all sorts of significance for me. And Noah grabbed some for himself as well. And so if for anybody else, it's just a rock on a shelf. But for me, it tells a really cool story. And so there's, those are just some cool things. Now it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's kind of fun stuff. So Boaz is at the city gate with the elders of the town. And this is where he meets up with the other family redeemer. And so he says in verse 3, Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. Well, the man replied, All right, I'll redeem it. And so one of the things that's important that we remember is the, like we talked about last week, the laws of redemption from Leviticus 25. It says that you can, uh, as a relative of the family, you can buy that land back for the relative. Well, here's the deal. This other family redeemer, guy number one, position number one, he's looking at this and sort of evaluating the circumstances. Naomi's widowed. She has no sons. She has no heir. And he has the ability to buy her land back. And so up front, it will be an outlay of money, an investment for him. But she's older. She won't be around forever. And then with no heir, that that land will come into his family's inheritance. It will come into his name, and it would essentially be a way for him to increase his land holdings and have access to buy land that he never would have had the right to buy otherwise. And so when this deal comes up, at first, it's like, too good to be true. Yes, where do I sign? I'm in. Absolutely. But there's more to the story, and Boaz sort of set him up a little bit. So he goes on, he says, then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow, and that way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Well, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. So once he explains the rest of the situation to this first guy, he kind of backs away from it. He's like, I can't do that. Now, what I want us to wrestle with a little bit here and understand is there's, there's no way that the first family redeemer didn't know about Ruth. This is a small town. 
Even the foreman of Boaz knew who she was and knew her story just as a laborer, a worker. He knew who she was. They all were gathered together when they first came back and they knew it like they know their story. So there's no way this guy as a relative didn't know about Naomi and Ruth. But for some reason, it wasn't really registering for him that he would be redeeming Ruth. Like when the offer first came up, it's like a no-brainer for the land. But then when Ruth's in the picture, and he would have to provide an heir for her, a son with her, all of a sudden it may endanger his estate, and so he's backing out. And so the question is, why is it that that these two family relatives that both knew the situation and knew the circumstances could see it so differently. One guy is like, I, all I see on the table is an offer to buy back land. And Boaz is looking at it like it goes without saying that you would have Ruth and provide an heir. And here's what's going on. Boaz is bringing to play his interpretation or understanding of a law that God put in place for the provision and protection and redemption of families, particularly like an immediate family. And Boaz is looking at this law and going like, I don't, I'm, I'm just speculating. And it's like, it, it, maybe the letter of the law doesn't apply perfectly, but I sure think the intent of the law, like, like this law shows us that God is a God that cares about redeeming families. And if there was ever a family to be redeemed, certainly this must be the one. And so Boaz is bringing to bear this law. And the other, the first family redeemer, he has a different, like he's familiar with this law, but in, as his observation would go, it's like, well, I'm not a brother. And so let's look at the law. It's, it's, uh, it's really cool and funny. And so hang on to your sandals. Ready? Uh, if two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother, so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel." But if the man refuses to marry his brother's widow, she must go to the town gate and say to the elders assembled there, my husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law by marrying me. The elders of the town will then summon him and talk with him. If he still refuses and says, I don't want to marry her, then uh, the widow must walk over to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Yeah. And then she must declare, this is what happens to the man who refuses to provide for his brother with children. Ever afterward in Israel, this family will be referred to as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. Let me tell you what. You do not want to be a part of the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. You especially don't want to get your sandal pulled off and your face spit in, right? This is a weird little thing here. But here's the deal. I think what we're seeing is that, is that one set of circumstances, one exact situation, two different people can bring to it two different perspectives. The first family redeemer can be familiar with this law and look at it like the letter of the law, like I'm not his, uh, I wasn't 
a brother. I'm not in that family. And so my only right is to redeem the land through the laws of redemption. And so I can buy it back. But he's looking at it only as Naomi. And Boaz is looking at it like an advocate for Ruth and Naomi, an advocate for the future of their family, for their well-being and their welfare. And he's looking at it going like, although the letter of the law might not be exactly what God had had prescribed literally, certainly it's clear that God is a God that is for redeeming families. God is a God that is for buying back like a future for your family, for changing the outcome of the horrible things that could happen along the way. And so, so Boaz is looking at it going like, it, 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 here's the deal. If you're going to redeem her, it's more than land. It, it falls in line with the heart of a God who would, who would have her have an heir, who would have them be provided for in their old age, who would have their name be remembered. This is what I think God would care about. And so as he presents this, the, the first family redeemer is like, well, if that's the deal, I need to back away. And again, I think a lot of times people can read this text or, or review it and, and look at it and go, well, the first guy somehow is bad because it feels like when we read it, it can feel like we can jump to the conclusion like, well, the first guy didn't do the right thing. We don't know why he didn't do it. Potentially, potentially he had a set amount of money that he could live on and provide for his family on. And if he had to provide Ruth and add to Ruth, you know, Ruth and Naomi both into his household to provide for them, and he had to provide her with a son, it could have been several children before she had a son. Who knows? And, and he, maybe he's making a, a, a decision based on what's best for his family that he's got, that he's like, I, I, I don't have the means to add that. Right? Maybe he's looking at it going, maybe he didn't have any children. And if he had a son with Ruth and then he died unexpectedly, maybe his land, his inheritance for his family would actually transition to her family potentially because there would have been a son in the line. Like, there's sort of things you can speculate on, but we don't really know why exactly he stepped away. Here's what I think is really good is that he had this peace of mind that he knew Boaz was there. Like Boaz wants to step up to the plate. Boaz wants to redeem this family. He he has the means to buy them back, but he also cares about it and wants to do it. And so the end of it goes like this. They actually, uh, they strike up a deal sealed with the uh, exchange of the sandal like you do. Uh, for fun, you guys should do a little homework. Do some research and look up why were sandals such a big deal in a contract? Whether it was about redeeming land or making a deal to redeem this family. Like what in the world does sandals have to do with anything? Do a little homework. And uh, it's not super hard to figure out and find, but it's kind of fun just to learn a little bit more about some of that cultural history. So they seal it with the sandal exchange, and, uh, and the witnesses in the city elders rejoice, and they celebrate, and they, uh, they really put this blessing on Ruth and Boaz's marriage, and, and just pray for an heir and for blessing for their family. And the end of Ruth, uh, verses 13 through 22, goes like this. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, And she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child 
Be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And this is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon, the good swimmer. Fist jokes. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And what a cool thing that we get to see how this plays out, how this blessing plays out. Like it, we get to see the, that King David, the, this man who's referred to as this man after God's own heart, who holds such a cherished place in the history of God's people, was a king who almost wasn't. The lengths that God went to to orchestrate Naomi and Ruth being where they were, the circumstances that they were, like redeeming their lives over and over again, whether it had been through provision, through gleaning, or meeting Boaz, or having a family redeemer, the lengths God went to to prepare Boaz to come to those city gates with such a different perspective, to come to those gates and to see Ruth and to see Naomi and to, out of the gate, think about things differently, to have this mindset of redemption, that you're never too far gone, that you're never unredeemable, that he just brought with him, like, I want to see things the way God sees things, like the heart of God as opposed to the letter of the law the things that had happened in his life to prepare him for that. And then the way it all comes together at the end, we see the significance of a name where they name him Obed, which is worship, essentially. And so it starts off in the story, remember, with Naomi, who said when she came back to Bethlehem, she said, don't call me pleasant anymore, right? Call me Mara, call me bitter. And she made a point to say that she was full when she left to go to Moab, but God, not, not just accidentally or the way things panned out, God brought me back empty. And so we get this glimpse of just the hardship and the heartache and the, the grief that she was going through and the distance in her relationship with God. And, and then this story of redemption takes place and all the way through it, her heart is softening. Her life is changing God is at work, and in the end, there is this new baby boy born, and they call him worship. I think that's a pretty cool thing. There's a couple of things that just happened, that characteristics that came up over and over throughout this story, is that there was always this faithfulness to God and this loyalty to family, particularly with Ruth, it shows up in all the characters in the story for sure. But there is this faithfulness to God and this loyalty to your family, to their family. That just shows up over and over and over again. And in a, such a cool way that it's, 
Um, very much like I can see my characteristics, good or bad, showing up in my son Noah and the way he's navigating and making a crazy you know, decision about an adventure. I'm like, oh, that's like me when I was his age. Very much the same way as Ruth is so faithful to God, as Naomi remains faithful to God, as Boaz is faithful to God, and there's this deep loyalty to family, it begets more faithfulness to God and more loyalty to family. It just grows more and more fruit like that. And, and it's like the, the more committed they are to God and the more loyalty they, the more loyal they are to one another and their family, the fruit on the tree is bigger and healthier and more awesome. It's worship. It's Obed. Is this man who will become instrumental in the genealogy of Jesus. Like, it's just unbelievable at what can happen. And it just makes me think about my life and about our lives, about how, I don't know how, I don't know if it's like this for any of you. I think, I've talked to enough people, I think this is reasonably common. I'm not going to say it's for everybody, but I think for a lot of times when we come to Christ, it's like we're really big on faithfulness to God. Like that's really important. We understand how important it is. And for a lot of us, it even comes easy. Like we want, we love being committed to the Lord and it's, it's a powerful thing. But then there's this part about loyalty to family where sometimes it's easy, but a lot of times it's not. And it's like, I love being faithful to God. I have to try really hard on a good day sometimes. I don't know if any of you have ever had family members that were hard to be loyal to. When you're like, I'm all in with God. I'll wait for them to get their act together and come back and clean up and they do their part and all that stuff. And it's like, oh, all throughout the book of Ruth, we get this amazing picture, like the, the awesome fruit that grows on the tree from their actions, from their life, is because there is this, this hand and glove, both faithfulness to God and loyalty to family. And I know for me, there's been so many times where it's like, times where it's super easy to be loyal to my family, to my relatives, to my parents, to my kids. And then there's times where it's been really hard where it takes absolute dying to myself, sacrificial commitment. It's like a, it's not a, a motivated because it's easy and it feels nice kind of loyalty. It's because it's the right thing to do. I don't know if you guys have ever been there with anybody in your family. But I think that as we kind of just finish up this series and, and wrap up with communion this morning, I think that's something that God's wanting us to wrestle with. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.